This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very practical and useful episode about running injuries, how to run injury-free and how to overcome running injuries. And we have a brilliant guest. He has master's degree in physiotherapy practice. He is the founder and CEO of the Run Smarter series, and he hosts the awesome Run Smarter podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Mr. Prody Sharp. Welcome, Prody. Thanks for having me on, Oli. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, brilliant to have you. So you have been as a guest in quite many podcasts and you have your own podcast. So let's not talk too much about your background as it's in the other episodes. Uh, so you have done over 200 podcast episodes on running injuries what are the most surprising things or the things you want to highlight from the from the interviews and your episodes yeah well the aim of all of my content is just to educate health professionals but mainly runners on how to reduce their risk of injuries it's just crazy how prevalent and how common running related injuries are and so trying to communicate exactly why runners get injured and exactly what they can do to reduce their risk of injuries is where I naturally hone a lot of my content and as well as busting a few myths because there are plenty of misconceptions out there when it comes to running, when it comes to uh, the perfect warm-up, when it comes to whether you should be strength training or not or stretching or if you do have an injury, should you run, rest, ice, heat, um, tape, all these sort of things that come out of the woodworks and a lot of it is quite confusing, a lot of it is contradictory and for a runner as well as health professionals to try and decipher what's evidence-based or what's effective, what's not effective is can be quite tricky and so my the aim of my podcast is trying to decipher all of that and trying to pick out okay what should you be paying attention to because this is evidence-based or um, what has been proven to be unhelpful but is still in the the regular community like being widespread information and so yeah that's usually my attempts and when I do listen when I ask my listeners what they're mainly after, a lot of recreational runners are just wanting to reduce their risk of injury as much as possible. That's the number one thing they want. It's injury prevention because, you know, they've either, they're either terrified of getting an injury and having to lose their fitness or have these setbacks preparing for their marathon race, or they've had a, a horrific injury in the past and really struggled to negotiate that injury and they've really struggled to to find that effective treatment. So they just want to reduce their injuries as much as possible. Yeah, I think it really makes sense, sense that what you're doing, and I think it's great episodes you're having. So in a, in a nutshell, what would you say are the secrets of running injury-free? It's, it's a wide question. You have done like 200 episodes, but we have like a few minutes here. What would be the <laughs> All right. main points? I would start off by saying it's unrealistic to implement something and expect to be injury-free. 
I have a realistic expectation that if you train smart, that's why I've got the Run Smarter podcast. If you make these smart decisions, it can significantly reduce your your risk of injury, but we can't get that risk down to zero. I think the uh, the what causes injuries are so multifactorial. There's just so many things at play and you need to be really strong when it comes to running and the accumulation of load is just enormous. So any little fluctuation in training might increase your risk of injury. So I usually start off by saying that, that, you know, we can do all these things to reduce your risk, but we can't get that risk down to zero. But if symptoms do arise and you do start developing early signs of an injury it's knowing exactly what to do like day one day two day three to negotiate those symptoms really quickly without losing fitness uh, and then you're back on track but for those who want to start implementing something that uh, would have the biggest bang for their buck being the most efficient way of reducing their risk of injury in a nutshell you want to avoid abrupt shifts in training because this is sort of what I keep going back to on the podcast. The number one reason why runners get injured is because they have had a, a training error, an abrupt change that the body just wasn't used to. It's exceeded the body's ability or capacity to adapt. And that comes in with large fluctuations or large um, changes in load. So that could be doing uh, increasing the amount of mileage too quickly, running too fast too quickly, changing their terrain, so going from flats to hills, changing their footwear, going from like supportive shoes to something more minimalist. And all of these shifts are okay as long as it's gradual enough that the body can adapt and catch up. And so that's the nutshell from the external load sort of um, approach. And that's the bulk of the running-related injuries. It's not about like the the running techniques or it's not about, you know, what type of shoe you need to be. You don't necessarily need to blame the shoes or blame how flexible you are. Most of it will usually come down to this external um, abrupt shift in training that just exceeds the body's capacity to adapt. So instead of adapting, it just gets, it just is too much of a shock to the system. And so it starts breaking down rather than building up. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And maybe we take a step backwards. What would you say is a running injury like you always have some sensation sometimes it's just something and sometimes it's a pain and some sometimes it's something that prevents you really doing things what would you say is an injury mm. if you a lot of uh, i follow a lot of the running research that gets published and they define injuries most of them define them differently but there's a general consensus and it's kind of the amount of time spent off running or the amount of times they've had to alter their running due to a certain pain. So following the science, they they usually pick uh, something that's um, symptom provoking that has say seven to 10 days off running or seven to days of altered running. Like you're having that, those symptoms dictate what your training volume is. It might be backing off your mileage or it might be only doing slow um, paces, but I do agree. Runners do get niggles all over, all over, especially if they're heavy into marathon training or if they're an ultra runner, they'll constantly have niggles or symptoms pop up here and there. But most of those innocent non-injury style symptoms just negotiate themselves really easily. It's like a day or two that it lasts for and then it just goes away. Whereas an injury would be a little bit more disruptive. It'd take a lot longer. And if you have those particular symptoms that 
persist beyond seven to 10 days, it's definitely an injury. It's not a niggle that you can just um, train without any modifications and expect to get better. So, so you have some sensation, how should you do with the new sensation? So for example, you start to feel something in your knee, you start to feel something in your uh, foot. How do you go from there? How do you define what should be done next? I think making sure that you uh, identify if there is any shifts in your training. So it would be nice to recognize as soon as symptoms develop, okay, what have I done in the last week that might be an explanation for that? Because a lot of times we want to learn from our mistakes. And if there is a mistake somewhere in the last seven days, we want to learn from that and change what we do moving forward. But if symptoms do arise, I often talk about a uh, adaptation zone. And I explain this to my runners on the podcast. Every single tendon, muscle, ligament in your body has a certain adaptation zone that you want to train within so that it gets stronger. But if you exceed that adaptation zone, that's when symptoms start arising and you know the an injury starts developing. That's why I was talking about those abrupt, abrupt shifts in training. But when symptoms arise, and if it if you notice it day one or during a run and it gets a little bit irritated, it's important to know that that adaptation zone, if it's irritated and it's a bit sore, that adaptation zone um, diminishes, it drops, it, it sets a new baseline for uh, just specifically for that area. So for example, if someone runs and they do a little bit too much and they start developing like knee pain and all of a sudden the next day it's a little bit sore to walk, it's a little bit sore to do stairs or squats. Um, running's okay but still sparks a little bit of symptoms. Keep in mind that that adaptation zone has now diminished just for that particular structure and our aim is to try and train within that new adaptation zone. So that might be backing off your loading a little bit. It might be um, stopping running for two days. It might be just starting or backing off your strength training and modifying that to do some sort of um, variation of your strength training. But keep in mind, I don't say complete rest. We need to modify your current load, whether that be running, strength training, cross training, so that it still uh, fosters strength within that adaptation zone so that it builds itself back up rather than stays in that sensitized kind of weakened state. Yeah, that that makes sense. So I, I have experienced maybe... Three, three decades of sports so I, I know quite well what kind of pain is is something that you need to take more seriously than others but for example now I have had some some aching in my left quadriceps and I have never had it before and first it was just a sensation like not not really a pain I just felt that I felt my left quadriceps I paid attention to it and now it's been maybe a month and I think yesterday it was maybe the first time that I, I felt it also during the training. Nothing bad, just kind of aching, a little bit like something. So what would you say, how should I approach? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that because I don't even know where it comes, so I don't know what to avoid. So how, how would you approach this kind of situation? And probably most most of the guidelines that I'm following or most of the advice I'm giving out, I should say, is for say running related injuries or overuse injuries, it, it wouldn't be direct trauma or some sort of um, 
say like a ligament injury where someone's been tackled or someone's like twisted on something or popped something like we're, we're talking about mainly just overuse injuries. If it's, if your quadricep muscle is slowly getting worse, it's slowly creeping into more of your activities. It's sort of slowly um, exceeding your current capacity. It's slowly exceeding your current adaptation zone. And if that continues, what happens is the quadricep becomes more irritated and less able to tolerate what it could previously do. And so the um, obviously a diagnosis would be would be best because it could be referral from the back or it could be you know some other neurological thing. But assuming that it's an overloaded neuro uh, musculotendinous sort of injury, we can kind of follow these guidelines. And I would make sure that if things are carrying over into your daily activities or all of a sudden stairs are sore, all of a sudden your running is sore, which it wasn't previously, you'd really want to catch that as early as possible because you don't want this sort of carryover effect or this trajectory that you're currently on to get worse and worse and worse. And so you would ask yourself, okay, where's my current adaptation zone? Where does it lie? And what am I doing to be proactive enough to bridge the gap between where my current capacity and current strength is and where my goals lie. And so it might be a lot of my runners are just wanting to return to running pain-free or they want to return to a triathlon or a 10K race. And so it's like, okay, where's the current capacity? Let's maybe do some hopping on the spot. Let's maybe do some squats. Let's maybe do some box jumps. Let's maybe run for 5K at a certain speed. And let's pay attention to symptoms. Let's pay attention to symptoms during the exercise. Let's pay attention to symptoms afterwards to see if there's any hangover effect of um, symptoms carrying over into the next day and let's establish like how strong it is and once we establish where that adaptation zone is we can then build upon that adaptation zone and try and bridge that gap between where it currently is and where you want to be so it might be building it up with some squats or some lunges or it might be modifying your running by avoiding hills or uh, backing off on the speed a little bit. It might be increasing your running cadence. It might just be um, making sure that you're warmed up before an exercise. All these little modifications that you can do to restore and build up the current capacity so that we're bridging the gap between what is now sort of becoming quite irritated and where your current capacity lies. Are you a medical doctor, physical therapist, personal trainer, or someone else helping individuals in making a change towards a healthier, better life? Imagine a behavior change tool designed for professionals like you to help your clients achieve better results and at the same time provide you with more income. Fibian is that tool. It offers an evidence-based way for health and wellness professionals to extend their services into coaching. The only thing your client needs to do is put a tiny Fibian device into their pocket for a week. The device collects objective physical activity data from your client. Fibian helps you to educate and coach your clients through this change towards a more active and healthy life. Strengthen your expert status. Distinguish yourself from the competition. Order Fibian now at Fibian.com. And you said about assessing the pain. Could you quickly explain the scale from 1 to 10 
how to assess the pain that you can then actually track what is the situation. Yeah, that's a tricky one because everyone interprets pain differently and everyone perceives pain differently. Uh, I do try my best to put it in so, sort of um, qualitative um, matters. And I do have an episode on this because a lot of my runners, when I talk to them about having an injury, I give them some pain guidelines around what's acceptable, what's not acceptable during a run. And for most running-related injuries, anything below a 4 out of 10 is acceptable, like during a run, um, provided that it doesn't exacerbate symptoms after that activity and it doesn't carry over into the next day. So I say pain for most running-related injuries, pain below a 4 out of 10 during the activity that doesn't exacerbate after the exercise, that returns to baseline symptoms within 24 hours is acceptable. And so I, I usually deal within the zero, one, two, and three and try and describe what that actually might feel like so that people can um, analyze it themselves and say, actually, this is acceptable or this is unacceptable. And the two or three out of 10 pain, I usually describe as something that you notice it there. Let's say if for a runner, if they have knee pain, when they run, they can kind of notice it there. It's enough to be a constant reminder. However, it's not severe enough for them to feel apprehension around planting that foot and taking off with that foot. So if you're going, say, downhill, um, paying attention to how confident you are planting that foot on the ground and not like being really ginger with landing. Um, but when it comes to pushing off, paying attention to the the unaffected side and seeing how confident you are pushing off with that side and making sure it's similar on the opposite side. So you're not overly cautious, not overly apprehensive. We're not changing your running form at all, which is um, a big no-no. If you're modifying your running in any way or you're limping, even just a mild limp in any particular way, symptoms are, are too aggressive or too high for you to be running within those acceptable pain limits. So a one can kind of be symptoms very, very light that comes and goes. It's only kind of when you think about it or only when you sort of push um, push the limits a little bit that you can start to notice it. The two or three are a little bit more of a constant reminder, but still not severe enough, or you still have the confidence to plant that, that foot and push off that leg equal to the opposite side. Yeah, so you said that if you need to limp, that's that's over. And then the others, you should be tracking and and how how would you do the tracking do you do you uh, suggest to use some app do you just suggest to put them on the on the calendar or what 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 would be the way the practical way to actually do this and follow up i i don't think there's any right or wrong provided that you're using the right time frames and you're writing it down somewhere you can't go off memory because everyone's memory is shocking uh if you try and look back four days ago what the pain was like during the run after the run the next day people have a really inaccurate recollection of what happened so as long as you're writing it down and i always say okay um remember what happened during that exercise remember what happened like during that cool down later on the day what those symptoms are like and always the next day, particularly the next morning, especially for like tendon injuries. We want to make sure that the first steps in the morning, you know, walking around for the first hour or so, we want to make sure there's no spikes in symptoms there because a lot of times when runners have a tendinopathy, let's say it's an Achilles tendinopathy and they start running, it's a bit sore, but then they have that warm up effect. So pain subsides 
as they warm up, almost sometimes to the point of being completely pain-free, and they can complete a, a 10K run absolutely pain-free. It's not until the next morning that they're really paying for it, but then they warm up again and they're pain-free and they go for that run again. And it kind of gives them the green light of saying, running's fine, running symptoms are okay, so maybe running is fine. And it's only until we explain those three timeframes and making sure that those three timeframes are acceptable to start to interpret whether what you're doing is acceptable. And so I do recommend people write it down. I work with runners online all the time and I just use a pretty standard Google spreadsheet to say Monday to Sunday, these are the runs that you're going to do. These are the rehab exercises that you're going to do. And what they do is comment on the cell. They leave a little comment per day to um, just highlight these are my symptoms these are the changes in training or these are the changes in symptoms just so we can accurately um, accurately kind of identify a trend whether our rehab is working week by week or day by day whether what you're doing has been successful or not yeah and and what would you say is kind of a normal trajectory of course there's no normal but some some sort of average like How does the pain go if you if you have, for example, pain of four when you start with your plantar fasciitis and you you reduce the load a bit and you track it? How does it normally go during the run, the pain, and in the morning, for example? What would be how how long does it take that you start to see see effects? Every runner is completely different, which is it's it's really tough to answer. Which I think you're expecting that anyway, <laughs> but. I would say uh, general guidelines, the longer you've had the the injury for, the harder it is to to get better. I think a, a two-week Achilles tendinopathy is going to be way different than a two-month Achilles tendinopathy. And I have sometimes some two-year Achilles tendinopathies. It's very slow and gradual the longer you've had it for. And so those expectations should be laid out. Uh, the research will show for a chronic tendinopathy somewhere in the ballpark of six to 12 months, but sometimes longer than 12 months. Uh, that's for a tendinopathy that's been going on for a few years. However, that is six to 12 months from good management. You could mismanage a tendon for years and just not get better because you've been mismanaged it for so long. It's six to 12 months once really good management starts that we should start seeing carryover But even then, in a really chronic tendon, I see chronic tendons all the time. I specialize in proximal hamstring tendinopathy. It's 70% of my caseload currently. And it can be a very gradual week by week, sometimes a very gradual two weeks by two weeks, seeing a trend of improvements. And other times it's a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more profound. It can be a little bit more um instantaneous sometimes someone mismanages or misidentifies their irritant and it's not until you just remove that and follow up with really good management that all of a sudden they feel a lot better a lot quicker and so depends on the injury if it's a stress fracture a lot harder to manage or a lot longer you need to be a lot more patient if it's say patellofemoral pain people can overcome that quite quickly with some really good um, management skills Shin splints, it can be a little bit more stubborn. I, I've found that shin splints are can be a little bit more on the stubborn side. But like like we've said before, everyone interprets pain differently as well. So everyone responds differently once you start that management plan. So it's really, really hard to predict. Yeah, I think that's a good good 
good way of managing expectation that we might be talking about years. And then many people think that, all right, I need to rest a year or something. Uh, how, how would you say to this that about about resting and then, then noticing, tra- testing it every month and no, it's not good yet? Very good to to point out because I do have this concept I refer to often on my podcast, this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral is what I call it. And if you had an injury, if you had a uh, abrupt shift in training and all of a sudden your Achilles has flared up because of that abrupt change, like we mentioned at the start, your adaptation zone in this really sensitized state has now diminished. So it can no longer tolerate the the loads that it once had. So in other words, it's temporarily weaker while it's in this sensitized state. It's very important that we try and find that new adaptation zone and train within that adaptation zone to build it back up. But what most people, what most recreational runners do is they say, damn, I'm injured. I've overdone myself. Let me have seven days off. Let me settle down the symptoms and let me see how I go after after seven days. Let me just see if I'm ready to get back. And so they combat this weakened state with rest, which contributes to further weakness. So then they return to running that next weekend and they return at the same dosage or the same mileage speed that they previous had previous to the injury. And it flares things up again because it's an obvious um, abrupt excess of load. And so it flares up again. It becomes more irritated than it once did. And so a runner's natural inkling is to say, all right, maybe it's just not um, healed yet. Maybe I just need more time off because seven days wasn't enough. So then they take a further two weeks off and contributes to further weakness, which then if you start hiking or if you start cycling or if you start some sort of strength training, sometimes that can be enough to trigger the pain because it's so weak and sensitized and therefore contributes to further pain, rest, weakness is why I call the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral because uh, let's say plantar fasciitis is a very, very common condition that I see that follows this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral to the point where people are unable to walk in bare feet or they're unable to um, spend 45 minutes doing grocery shopping because their fascia is flared up. And then that's when they put themselves in really supportive shoes and orthotics and encase their foot in the most support possible for pain relief. But then that further contributes to weakness because the foot isn't working. And so that's a... um, that takes the cake, I think, in terms of conditions that elicit this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. But a lot of overuse injuries, a lot of these running-related injuries can follow the same pattern. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really, you're on the point. I, I think I have specialized myself with different different injuries that I have I have had them for years. Like I have had Oskut's clutter's disease in my knees when I was doing triple jump as a teenager. I think that carried on like maybe 10, 15 years on on some level. I have had jumper's knee, plantar fasciitis, many, many other things, but I have never missed uh, a game or a training or I don't usually need to limp. I can, I've been able to keep it just there, basically training for decades every day and, and still having some some of those issues how how would you say 
me looking backwards, should I have done it differently? Basically, I've been able to perform, but tracking those along sometimes a couple of years each injury. I would say you you have probably started operating on like baseline, like things have returned to baseline, not getting better, not getting worse, but you've elicited enough um, exposure to that injury so that it doesn't get worse. It's not like a particular flare up, but baseline would just hover at this like acceptable pain, which takes me back to um, these acceptable pain rules. Yes, it needs to be less than a four out of 10 in most cases. Yes, it needs to return to baseline within 24 hours, but another uh, guideline on top of that is it should be getting better week by week because if it's not getting better week by week then it's going to be very hard to overcome it when you finally decide enough is enough let me try and bite the bullet and really overcome it but you've had it for two years that's going to be so hard to overcome so looking back on it I'd probably suggest that yes you could have um, kept operating at that same um, that same athletic level but probably should have supplemented something else in to rehab it a little bit more effectively so that you could see an improvement week by week. And that might've been more honed in strength training or um, just trying to implement something to raise up the capacity or raise up the adaptation zone of that, that injured site. And so that would probably be my advice. If you had to look back, it'd probably be more focusing on the rehab side of things. But again, complete rest wouldn't be the answer which is what you didn't do yeah and and at that point there was no podcast yet invented so mm-hmm. i couldn't listen to your podcast for example i had a i had a jumper's knee and I, I was reading the scientific articles and it was basically the guideline was to do eccentric squats like uh quite quite often i think it was even twice a day a few sets and and basically i would be doing it three months and then I made one mistake, one jump where the load was too big and it kind of went to the baseline. And I, I think that was really, really frustrating that, that it felt that it didn't really help if you made one one jump. How, how would you say the tendency of different injuries? Like what are the, for example, if you compare, compare jumper's knee to plantar fasciitis, is there some differences how they behave have you noticed some some kind of things that you could highlight for people yeah there's been a ton of research around tendinopathies and what the best approach is for those um you know it first came out that eccentric loading was fantastic for um for tendons they get this for most cases they have this analgesic response where they feel uh symptoms subside and they feel like uh, power return, strength return in most cases, and that can be immediate. They could notice uh, improvement in pain within one session or like within a couple of minutes as soon as they found out that tendons love slow, heavy load. And um, that's particularly one approach that I like to take. The research is still up in the air in terms of what the most effective approach is for slow, heavy stuff because it first came out that eccentric loading was the um, approach that needs to be taken but then some other competing researchers come out to say you know what concentric or sometimes the concentric eccentric combination can be just as effective and so 
it's it's hard to really find one answer for that, but it doesn't really matter because like they respond equally as well to whatever approach. So as long as it's slow, heavy, controlled load that's within your adaptation zone that doesn't um, increase symptoms within 24 hours and doesn't spark a huge flare-up, that can be really, really nice for tendons. So Achilles sort of Achilles issues, um, sometimes plantar fasciitis can behave as a tendon, even though it's just fascia. Um, it can still have that same response. Um, high hamstring tendinopathies, so a proximal hamstring tendinopathy can really do well. I've seen a lot of PHT clients that say strengthenings um, initially helped me, but now it's just ineffective. And you ask them, they say, okay, so why this plateau in improvement? What What is your progressions been like and they've done body weight squats they've done body weight bridges or they may have increased the weights of their bridges but only progressed to five to ten kilos and you say well you got that initial success because of the strength work but you just haven't progressed it like the tendons want slow heavy load and you're just not fostering that and so i get them doing say deadlifts and once they can tolerate it and once their back is strong and once their legs are strong, start doing really slow, heavy stuff and they start responding a lot better than what they had have done if they were just doing bodyweight exercises and thinking or believing that that is strength training. Um, so the tendons will do the slow, heavy stuff. The other types of injuries, so like patellofemoral pain, um, will respond more to like um, just any sort of squats, lunges, it doesn't need to be slow and heavy stuff. You need to just find what progression of exercises elicits that acceptable level of pain and just progress from there. It doesn't need to be slow and heavy. Um, Shin splints would be more along the definitely load modifications. Definitely have to do that uh, because something within their running has sparked the the shins or the um, that particular part of the bone to become irritated. But Again, that's strengthening, that's strengthening the calf muscles, the soleus muscle and load modifications. So there are specific approaches to specific conditions, but all the principles, all the, all the management principles and the strength principles are pretty much the same as what, what I discussed at the start. It's just load modification, finding that new adaptation zone, working within that adaptation zone and progressing back up to where it previously was, and then trying to exceed what it once was to be as resilient as possible. And when you're talking about, you know, it just took one jump for your knee to flare up again, that signifies to me that it probably just wasn't resilient enough. Yes, it could you could go to pain-free um, return to sport, but any little shift, any little spark, any little spike in load sets it off again. How about next time we rehab it so that it is just indestructible? You can do so many single leg squats, single leg deadlifts, hopping, like all these sort of things and be unshakable. You can train that that um, component to be as resilient as possible. That's um, a, a good goal because then we're going from rehab to like a prehab to like a let's make this as strong as possible to reduce the risk of a, an injury in the future. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. 
This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.